Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I'm Dio Alegria and I will be your host today. I am originally from Chile. I studied at a public university, the University of Chile. My professors always talked about the vulnerable and precarious state of public higher education. This state was due to the neoliberal policies established by the dictatorship during the 80s. The University of Chile became defunded by the government during that time, losing its capacity to reach every region of the country. Many of my instructors did not hold tenure-track positions, but worked in different institutions across the city of Santiago in order to make a living. When I came to the U.S. in 2019 to continue my studies, I found that the words precarious and vulnerable were still a part of the conversation, even though tenure-track seemed more prevalent. Today we will be reflecting on vulnerability in the context of public higher education in the US. Michael Bernard Donalds is our guest today. He teaches rhetoric and theory in the English department and in the Center for Jewish Studies at UW-Madison. His research areas are contemporary Jewish history and rhetoric, rhetorical history and theory, and 20th and 21st century literature and culture. He served as UW-Madison Vice Provost for Faculty and Staff, and he's now the Executive Director of the Center for Teaching and Research on Writing. He has written books on Mikhail Bakhtin, Holocaust Studies, Memory in the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, among uh, many articles and edited collections. The Vulnerability of Public Higher Education is his most recent book, recently published by the Ohio State University Press. Michael Bernard Donalds joins me today to talk about his newest work. Michael, thanks for coming on A Public Affair. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Diego. How are you? Good, good. Everything's going well. Did you enjoy the snow yesterday? Short-lived, but sure. It's always fun to get snow in the winter. Nice, nice. Well, you're joining us to talk about the arguments and the case studies of your new book. The vulnerability of public higher education traces the history and the current crisis of public higher education in the U.S. through the work, the rights, and the responsibilities of faculty. The book showcases rigor, clarity, and depth. But before we move to the main concepts and arguments of your book, why don't we talk about its origin story? As you mentioned in the acknowledgments section, you have held administrative positions at UW-Madison. You were a department chair and a center director. But it was your work as a vice provost for faculty and staff 
the one that changed the way you understood public higher education. How did your work as a vice provost shape this new book? Well, Diego, as you said, I, I've been around administration in universities for a little while. And um, that, that work was mainly at the unit level. So as you said, department chair, center director. Um, and I, I don't think I realized until I went into the provost office just how complicated universities were, um, but also how, uh, how the work of faculty was complicated um, by the political climate in the state and the, and the political climate in the United States surrounding higher education. Um, I was around um, a lot of discussions about uh, policy, um, about um, how to fund the university and its programs. But more than anything else, I think I was um, made much, much more deeply familiar with the way that, that faculty talk about the work that they do in the university. Um, among the discussions that we had were on um, the sustenance of interdisciplinary programs and what that meant for faculty work um, around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging initiatives and um, the implications of that work um, for faculty labor and for how faculties lived lives were situated in the university and in their communities. So, I mean, I say in the acknowledgments uh, that I hadn't intended to write the book, and, and I think that's true. Um, but by the time I got out of the provost office, I felt like I needed to say something about some of the things that I'd learned while I was there. And you were also talking with other uh, provosts from other universities across the Midwest, right? Sure. Uh, one of the best parts of my job in the provost office was getting to know the, um, my counterparts um, in faculty and staff affairs at other Big Ten academic alliance institutions. And we would meet um, several times throughout the year. We did um, academic uh, leadership program uh, events uh, a number of times at different campuses. And so part of my, part of my education during those years was understanding the University of Wisconsin-Madison in relation to our Big Ten peers and in relation to other large research public universities across the country. Um, and uh, what I learned is that while each university is, is distinct in its own way, um, we share a lot of qualities and, and for sure we share uh, concerns about what the future of public higher education holds. Perfect. Well, just as a full disclosure, I was a student of yours in the fall 2021 when you were teaching a graduate seminar on rhetoric, violence, and vulnerability. And the generative discussions we had in your seminar resonate across your book. Um, so let's dig into the, into the book. You claim that the current crisis of public higher education in the U.S. rests on a misalignment between its material conditions and its commonplaces. You define a commonplace as and here I will be paraphrasing, a term or a set of terms whose meaning is understood to be more or less stable. Its significance is recognized mutually by those who use those commonplaces. They are generally substitutes for a more complex set of meanings. 
Could you expand on this notion and give us an example from our everyday lives? And after that, could you talk about some commonplaces around higher education that currently circulate within and outside the university? Sure. So I, I, I'm a rhetorician, and so I think about commonplaces in their uh, sort of classical sense, which is um, essentially shortcuts for arguments. They're, they're things that we simply understand to be the case um, in normal circumstances. So uh, American, um, America is a beacon of democracy for the world. That's, that's a, a commonplace that I hear, I guess, more than I should um, in the political landscape these days. Or um, uh, the United States is the land of uh, apple pie and Chevrolet. In other words, it's a way of it's a way of using terms to characterize uh, a, a way of thinking about material reality. Um, one of the things that I was trying to explore in this project was um, the way the way we think about public higher education and 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 the commonplaces, the terms, the 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 ways that we describe in common the work that goes on in public universities. And I was thinking specifically about uh, the common places that, that faculty members uh, typically use to describe their work. So some of those common places, um, and again, these are terms that are sort of common in the, in the higher education landscape, particularly, particularly for uh, public universities, is that a public, public universities are meant to uh, create engaged and thoughtful um, public citizens um, or that um, public higher education is one of the linchpins of democracy along with uh, a free press for example or in thinking now about faculty work that that faculty work rests on uh, uh, a pair of of terms, rights and responsibilities. We have responsibilities to educate our students, to do research in ethical ways, and we have the right to teach our research as we see fit, um, and we have the right to um, uh, work with our students in pedagogical, pedagogically sound ways. Um, what, what came clear to me um, is that the commonplaces that we typically use to describe higher education in the United States and the work of faculty, and by we, I mean people who do their work in universities, don't quite fit the commonplaces that are being used in, say, state legislatures in places like Wisconsin, North Carolina, Texas, or by members of the public. Um, we, we typically think of higher education as a kind of public trust between the citizens of the state and um, faculty members in public universities. They provide the funding and we provide the, the education. Um, it's seen as a public good or traditionally higher education has been seen as a public good. More and more, though, I think there are, there are state legislatures around the country, and I think this is probably true for uh, the state of Wisconsin, is that, it's, that higher education is no longer seen as a public good. It's seen as a private good. Um, it relies more heavily on uh, tuition dollars than it does on general purpose revenue from, from the state. Um, citizens believe that sending their children to college is, isn't necessarily for uh, 
you know, to allow them to think great thoughts um, for four years, but to give them certification that will qualify them for a job at the end of, you know, after graduation. Um, so w what I began to understand was that there was a misalignment between the way that um, we have traditionally talked about public higher education, probably from about the 1930s or 40s until I would say the Reagan revolution of the 1980s and the way we talk about the value of and the work of public higher education today. Thank you so much. You are listening to A Public Affair on Community Radio WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm Diego Alegria, and our guest today is Michael Berner Donalds. He's a professor of rhetoric at the English department at UW-Madison. We are talking about his most recent work, The Vulnerability of Public Higher Education. This show is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking calls from our listeners. So uh, you claim, Michael, that uh, the misalignment between these material realities and the commonplaces expose the vulnerabilities of higher education, particularly in terms of faculty work. But before, before we explore some case studies, uh, I think we, we can um, take a few steps back on the very notion of vulnerability as a general term. And here I'm going to be quoting you. So you define vulnerability as a constituted, constitutive openness to the other. It is a condition in which we are thrown into a world with subjects that are unknown to us and that form collectivities. Could you expand on this definition of vulnerability as a constitutive openness to the other? And also, how does it relate to the notion of mobility that's also addressed in your book? Before I get into the definition that, that you just quoted, I want to go back to a more sort of typical garden variety way of understanding vulnerability. Um, and that's susceptibility to harm. And uh, that idea of susceptibility to harm or precariousness um, is, as you said in your introduction, a term that um, is used about public higher education around the world. Um, but more and more now we're talking about that precarity in the United States. We're talking about it in terms of the elimination of tenure protections or the threat of the elimination of tenure protections for faculty members. Um, that precarity is visible in terms of uh, the job insecurity of non-tenure track faculty and instructional staff. Um, it's seen in the reach in from uh, legislatures around the country um, on what faculty members can teach um, or what they can say in public spaces. So that's the that's more or less the the, the typical understanding of vulnerability. And I think that that description is not inapt when it comes to describing um, how public education is faring in some states. I think Wisconsin is uh, maybe not faring as badly as some others, but um, in places like Florida, which is, I think, the, the prime example of legislative reach in, I think there are a number of faculty members who would say that their positions in the University of Florida or Florida State or Florida Atlantic University are precarious because they're not they're not sure what they can say in the classroom anymore they're not sure they're going to have a job 
tenure notwithstanding. So that's the first sense of, of vulnerability that I, that I wanted to highlight in the book because that's the sense of vulnerability that I think most people um, understand. I'm using, I'm using the term vulnerability the way it pops up in some uh, theoretical discussions um, over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and, it, and it is that idea of a, a general openness to others. It's, it's a way of describing um, the, the state of affairs uh, among human beings, uh, as you said, who may have some things in common, but are distinct entities, are distinct subjects. Um, and when we engage with others, when we enter into a relationship with others, I mean, we're, we're taking a chance in some sense um, in, in being open, in, in entering a dialogue, in, in uh, having uh, discussions or arguments. Uh, we don't know what we're going to get. Um, there are common terms that we hope are going to be used in a discussion, but I think as the last 10 years or so in the political arena have shown, it's, there's no guarantee that in offering yourself to another through discourse or through argument, you're going to, you're going to be, uh, there, there will be any reciprocity of, of goodwill or good sense. Um, what I was hoping to do is put those two senses of vulnerability into dialogue with one another to, to show first the vulnerability of higher education in the sense that I described before threats to tenure, threats to faculty work, but also to activate this second sense of vulnerability and to suggest that um, one of the things, one of the things that we, that constitutes us as humans is, is that openness. Um, and that openness carries with it the, a sense of risk. Um, it carries with it a sense of um, uncertainty, um, of uh, unmooredness. Um, and that's the way that, that this sense of vulnerability is related to the idea of mobility. Um, again, going back to my, my roots in rhetoric, uh, it's, it's often said that a, a well-performed speech or, or, or a, an effective argument can move people. Um, your own work uh, with Keats, I think, shows the ability of poetry uh, to move through the manipulation of language. Um, that's, that's one sense in which um, we can talk about the relation of language and, and movement. Um, but I think vulnerability and that sense that there, there is a risk, that there's an uncertainty in, in how we open our relations to others. Um, the, the idea that um, we are not defined by who we say we are. We're not defined in universities, for example, by our discipline. We're not defined by our department. We're not defined by our roles as faculty members. Um, that as vulnerable human beings, um, a lot of that is up for grabs. It's mobile. Um, it's, it's, it, uh, it has the capacity to change. And what I'm getting at in this project is the sense that universities have, have traditionally been understood as fairly stable places um, in, in which we can have these discussions. Uh, one of the things that, that I found interesting in, this, in, the, in the discussions of vulnerability that I was looking at was that um, 
that that capacity for change, that in, the, the intellectual sort of tumult and back and forth that you get in universities is antithetical to that kind of stability. So what would happen um, when we fully mobilize that idea of mobility that's inherent in vulnerability and uh, leaned into that idea of, of vulnerability in that second sense, in that sense that we're constituted by our openness to others, um, by that sense of uncertainty, by that sense of movement and mobility. What would faculty work look like then? What would universities look like then? Um, so those are some of the ideas that I was exploring there. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, I think in our next question, we'll turn to the first, um, the first meaning that you uh, mm -hmm. displayed. And then as we go into uh, the whole conversation, we'll move to the second, second uh, meaning. And now we can turn into a little bit about uh, history. So could you tell us why faculty work in public higher education has become vulnerable in the last 40 decades, particularly with the rise of the neoliberal university? I think one of the things that changed um, beginning in the 1980s um, was, uh, and, and this is on the heels of uh, the anti-Vietnam movement in the 1960s, the rise of the women's movement, um, the rise of um, uh, what sort of cultural and ethnic self-consciousness on the part of uh, Latino students, on the part of African-American students and faculty, um, that universities were, of course, a place to get a higher education, but they were also a sense to explore a sense of self, a sense of identity, um, and, and to explore the tensions between the history of those identities and the idea of um, public access to to knowledge um, through higher education, um, and so between the between the uh, faculty and student protests against the war um, and the um, the agitation for. Uh, what identity, uh, 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 an ability to explore identities in an institutional way through uh, centers for African American culture or through women's studies programs. Um, the, the tenor, the, the, the education shifted from, and, and, and I'm getting this from a, a wonderful book by Christopher Loss um, called Between the Citizens of, in the State. Um, he's, he sees a shift from a, a, a responsibility-based sense of higher education where faculty were responsible to the students and the students were responsible to use their knowledge in the public in the public um common uh commons uh that that there was also uh, a rights notion of higher education uh that was beginning to grow and um students uh right around this 18 year olds were given the right to vote so so uh, college-age students were seen as as full citizens, um, and uh, students began to see college as a place where they not only had responsibilities but rights. Um, Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of California, um, was very unhappy with what he saw going on at the, on the campuses in, in the UC system, and particularly at Berkeley. 
Uh, and he began to clamp down on these student demonstrations, on these student agitations for uh, a rights-based model for higher ed. Um, and that became part of um, a, a set of um, more conservative talking points. And, uh, and in, the, in that decade, I would say, uh, is when you begin to see the shift to the idea of higher education as, as needing to be responsible to taxpayers, as needing to be responsible to the citizens of, of the state and to members of the legislature. And what that did was it, it, it gave, it, it created a, a premise uh, through which legislatures began to uh, require accountability from their, uh, their universities in a way that hadn't been hadn't been highlighted as much before. Um, and you begin to see, and, and I think those are the sort of first vestiges of what you're beginning to see now in state legislatures where uh, members of assemblies and senates are passing laws about um, what faculty members should and shouldn't teach, about the content of certain courses, um, about the reasons for why faculty might be dismissed beyond, um, you know, reasons such as cause. Um, so, so what happened, I think, in those years is, is that um, you begin to see a turn away from the university as um, something that is, uh, that, that benefits through education and, and citizenship to citizens of the state and benefits them in a kind of fiduciary way. Um, that uh, the that that and that state legislatures um, needed to uh, make colleges and universities accountable for what they were teaching, and um, they exerted that accountability through uh, the funding spigot um, by pr uh, providing funding, or when they were dissatisfied with what the university was teaching and and what faculty were teaching their students, um, to reduce funding. Thank you so much, Michael. You're listening to A Public Affair on Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm Diego Alegria, and our guest today is Michael Bernard Donalds. He's a professor of rhetoric at the English Department at UW-Madison. We are talking about his most recent work, The Vulnerability of Public Higher Education. The show is pre-recorded so we won't be taking calls from our listeners. So now that we've talked about the different meanings of vulnerability and commonplaces, and also the history of the last 10, uh, 40 decades of the university and that um, the first sense of, of vulnerability is susceptible uh, to harm, uh, let's now turn to some examples that deserve our attention. The first one is not a case study, but an example that frames your chapter on the vulnerabilities of institutional diversity. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a MacArthur Award-winning journalist of race and racial inequality. She's the creator, as staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, of the 1619 Project, which won a Pulitzer Prize. The faculty in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill voted to offer a tenured professorship and an endowed chair in journalism to Nicole Hannah-Jones. The university's board of governors refused to offer her a tenured position. 
The reason behind this was how the 1619 project exposes structural racism as an underlying infrastructure in the project of the American nation. Howard University would later offer Nicole Hannah-Jones both an endowed chair and a tenured professorship. What does this example tell us about the vulnerabilities of institutional diversity and about the misalignments between faculty and board members? Though the example doesn't sit in the chapter that I wrote on um, the misalignment between universities and publics, I think it's a good example uh, of just that dynamic. Um, what I think what happened in that case, um, and I talk about this um, not in terms of diversity programs, but in terms of uh, rights and responsibilities of faculty in the case of Stephen Salaita at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, um, is that um, a university's values, in the case of Hannah Jones, it were, was the values of, of diversity and equity. Um, in the case of uh, the University of Illinois, it was um, the ability to teach on controversial subjects. And Salaida was a professor of uh, Native American studies um, and uh, also uh, Palestinian studies. In, in both cases, what happened was that public sentiment trumped the university's values. In the case of Hannah Jones, um, her work was is simply unimpeachable. It's outstanding journalistic work, and she would have had an, uh, an, a galvanizing effect on the journalism program there. And, and everybody at the institution from, you know, maybe from the, from the college and from the department on down understood that. But that work was tremendously unsettling to a number of people in the state of North Carolina, and particularly to legislators who, for whatever reasons, don't value diversity. The same thing happened to Stephen Salaita at the University of Illinois. Um, in that case, uh, the department, the college, uh, wanted to offer him a tenured uh, faculty position uh, in the American Indian Studies program at the University of Illinois. Um, but because of some of the things that he said publicly about the war in Gaza that was going on at that time, uh, in, in, in the middle of the last decade, um, the university rescinded his job offer um, and put him in virtually the same position as Nicole Hannah-Jones was in, uh, in the more recent case in North Carolina. Um, like I said, I, I, I think the, 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 in both cases, um, the university's sense that faculty should be allowed to teach on uh, difficult questions um, and to uh, use the scholarship that they've done in 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 uh, Hannah, uh, in Nicole Hannah Jones' case, it was uh, the 1619 project. Hmm. They they should be allowed to use that scholarship to ex explore history, ethnicity, and so on, um, as their disciplines suggest. And she did just that. Um, there's a sense of faculty autonomy at play here, that faculty should be, should be given the autonomy to do that kind of work, uh, absent interference from legislatures, from administrators, and so on. Um, 
But in both cases, administrators at the university gave in to pressure from a public um, that saw Salaita's statements and uh, the, the scholarship in the case of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones as too controversial, too hot. Um, and in spite of uh, faculty members' uh, autonomy uh, as guaranteed by the American Association of University Professors, uh, they were denied positions at those universities. Um, and, and this happens more and more in the United States. And this is what I mean by, by faculty members being vulnerable in that first sense. There are all kinds of protections baked in uh, to faculty work, including shared governance, including uh, uh, tenure protections, um, including uh, disciplinary autonomy. Um, but more and more, those, um, those protections are being eroded um, by um, public discourses uh, in which expertise is being devalued, um, in which um, the production of knowledge is seen as potentially dangerous. Um, and I think what happened in both of those cases was um, <laughs> publics don't look like publics used to look anymore. Um, and we need to figure out ways to navigate that terrain. Thank you so much. Uh, Michael, for also giving us context, more context on that uh, example and other other cases too. And now we'll move to a, a particular crisis of shared governance at the University of Alaska uh, due to a budget crisis in the fall 2019. And you define uh, shared governance as the distribution of the operations of a university uh, between its governing board its president and its faculty and staff, each according to their particular area of expertise. The university's president proposed a number of options that um, were like proposed quickly with no faculty input and that involved the dismissal of faculty. So uh, what does this example tell us about consensus and deliberation when it comes to breaking shared governance? Consensus and deliberation, I think, work when the boundaries of what's uh, the boundaries of what's acceptable in terms of argument and the terms of that argument are agreed upon by all parties. Um, that's at at best, that's what deliberation can accomplish. It's a way of it's a way of arguing with our peers, uh, given us a, a common set of assumptions. Um, the argument over uh, the, the argument at the University of Alaska um, had a number of features um, uh, in which uh, shared governance was not understood in, 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 in deliberative terms the way I've just described them. Um, I think ideally um, in any university, um, the faculty, the staff, the administration and a board all work together um, both to agree on the on the terms of the discourse or the argument of, of deliberation and then work with goodwill to find common ground uh ways to to come to agreement and that's not to say that the faculty will always win out or the administration will always win out but there needs to be involvement of all all of the parties um in in any shared decision making i think that's that's the 
that's that's the way shared governance um, in its early stages in American universities was set up to work um, with boards primarily having a fiduciary responsibility with administrators mainly having uh, a, a responsibility to uh, assure that uh, the array of programs uh, work the way that they were supposed to. And then uh, the faculty and staff would determine uh, things like who to hire, what expertise is to hire in, and so on. They, they, after all, are the experts on those fronts. The American Association of University Professors has codified a great deal of this over the last, say, 100 years since it's coming into existence in 1915. Um, and, and the AAUP has created guidelines that have been adopted by almost all public universities in the United States. Um, things, uh, agreements on uh, protections of tenure, on how shared governance is supposed to work, about what to do in financial emergencies. And it's that last core category, the financial emergency, that really brought the crisis to a head in, at the University of Alaska. Um, at the time, oil revenues had decreased, and oil revenue being the principal source of funding for higher education in the state of Alaska, um, there was just not enough funding to keep the university going the way it had been going for a number of years. Uh, so what happened was that the that the president um, and the governor of the state had tried to reach some kind of an agreement about how to deal with this financial problem, um, and the governor essentially said, we don't have the money, we're cutting your budget by, I don't remember what the figure was, but it was tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and the president made uh, some unilateral decisions about uh, program cuts and about uh, potential faculty layoffs. Shared governance assumes that there's a process by which those kinds of decisions about program cuts and faculty layoffs get made. Um, in this case, uh, the president, uh, President Johnson, um, dispensed entirely with the process um, that would have involved faculty in helping to make some of those decisions and proposed cuts that would have eviscerated a number of programs on several of the University of Alaska campuses. And the faculty, rightly so, became uh, very upset um, and called for a vote of no confidence in President Johnson and, and I believe the board in one case. Um, it turns out that um, the cuts didn't come to fruition in the way that everyone feared that they had, but the damage had been done because the president of the university um, had violated one of the most sacrosanct tenets of shared governance, which is consultation, which is deliberation with members of the faculty, the staff, and administration. And he was, he eventually resigned from the presidency of the University of Alaska. For those listeners in Madison, you'll remember that President Johnson from the University of Alaska was a candidate for the presidency of the UW system. And all of this had exploded right around the time that he was a candidate for the presidency here. And you'll remember that that search did not succeed in, in Wisconsin. Um, the reason I, I highlighted this case um, is, is to show the fragility of shared governance. Um, one needs to agree that it's a good thing to share responsibility across different employment categories and different responsibilities. Again, 
faculty are mainly responsible for those things that fall within their expertise, but they have a vested interest in things like program cuts and faculty layoffs. And because they were um, essentially barred from any participation in this process, um, their agitation uh, led to the uh, resignation of, of the president, of President Johnson. This is, I think, one of the uh, one example of faculty mobility in the sense of becoming mobilized um, that suggests a way forward for faculty in times like the ones that we're facing. And it has to do with uh, mobilization uh, on the grounds of our vulnerability and not just our vulnerability as being precarious. Um, being in a precarious position, given what state legislatures are doing to public universities, but also to use the mobility inherent in vulnerability um, to produce movement like the movement that dislodged President Johnson from the University of Alaska system. Thank, thank you so much, uh, Professor Michael. You're listening to A Public Affair on Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm Diego Alegria, and our guest today is Michael Bernard Donalds. He's a professor of rhetoric at the English department at UW-Madison. We're talking about his most recent work, The Vulnerability of Public Higher Education. This show is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking calls from our listeners. And you move us to the second sense of vulnerability, and that's exactly where we're going to Uh, land on uh, now. So after we've been analyzing some some examples from, from your book, what can faculty members do to address the misalignments between the material realities and the commonplaces of public higher education? More specifically, how can vulnerability and mobility reshape the university as engines for solidarity among its members? One of the things I don't do in this book um, is make policy recommendations. Um, I think one of the things that I learned in the in the provost office is that sometimes policy recommendations don't really work all that well, particularly when you're dealing with a very complicated situation like the one we're dealing with in higher education these days. However, um, as I alluded to in my response to one of your earlier questions, I think one of the things that I do recommend is that is that faculty members lean into that sense of vulnerability, that second sense of vulnerability. Um, in much of the reading that I did in higher education, what became very clear, um, and, and I talk about this some in my chapter on um, interdisciplinary hiring programs, that because of the way expertise gets shaped um, in universities, We think of ourselves as belonging to disciplines, departments, units, and that sometimes uh, makes those units and the faculty members in them uh, feel fairly discreet and isolated from others. Um, one of the values of interdisciplinary work is that it has the capacity to overturn some of the orthodoxies of those disciplines. Um, it provides a third language to mediate between the language of um, quantum physics and quantum uh, quantum engineers, for example. Um, so 
to, to some extent, I think what I'm arguing for is that the mobility that's inherent in vulnerability um, can, be, can be the faculty member's friend. Um, but that, that has certain, <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's, a, there's always a risk associated with that kind of a mobility. And, and uh, one of the things I say in the book is that um, uh, protections of tenure, for example, are necessary but not sufficient. They're necessary because it helps us um, take risks in our job, uh, in the research and the teaching that we do. But it's not sufficient to protect us necessarily, um, as we've seen in, in some of the moves in state legislatures recently. Um, the mobility that I'm talking about and the vulnerability in that second sense um, that I'm advocating for may mean that um, tenure, tenure may not work the way we think it, it works. It, and, and that might not be a bad thing in the sense that faculty are mobile intellectually, um, disciplinarily, um, but also uh, we're a fairly, I mean, in the knowledge economy, faculty are movable. Faculty move from institution to institution fairly frequently. Um, and it, it may be that our being tethered to a, to an institution or to, uh, a, a discipline um, might be one of the things that also tethers us to ways of thinking about the, the, the value of public higher education in ways that don't align with um, a rapidly moving and shifting public that, uh, and, and a rapidly moving and shifting public discourse surrounding public higher education. So that's one way I think um, where the consequences of vulnerability and mobility in that, in that sense of riskiness, in that sense of um, being unmoored or untethered might serve us well. Um, again, I, I, I don't know exactly what form that's gonna take, um, but I think, we need to, I think we need to be imaginative about the form that that might take. And, it, and the universities may not look the way universities exist now in a in a future of in a vulnerable and precarious future thank you so much michael for that for that answer and the possibility of 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 imagining right um i think um in terms of our last questions um i'm gonna turn into your uh profession uh, as a professor of of rhetoric so it seems to me that you approach rhetoric uh, as a as a disciplinary field, as a communicative phenomenon, persuasion, uh, but also as an um, ethical imperative. You talk about uh, a call and a responsibility. What does becoming rhetorical mean in your book? It's the last chapter of of your book, and it's. Um, it's a phrase that's trying to uh, to mobilize um, many of of the terms we've been talking about today: commonplaces, vulnerability, mobility, solidarity, in the context of public higher education in the U.S. I borrow that term "becoming rhetorical" from a colleague of mine, David Fleming, uh, who works at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, and what David was trying to accomplish with that term was to suggest that, um, 
universities should understand their role as um, creating thoughtful, deliberative citizens. I, I, I like that idea of um, the building of a deliberative citizenship. But again, I think it depends on some, uh, I don't want to say old fashioned terms um, that may have become outmoded these days. Um, so what do I mean by becoming rhetorical? Um, in the classical sense, rhetoric was, was, was a potential. It was a dynamic. It wasn't just about finding the right ways to argue. It was about uh, the, the formation of, of reason. It was about the, the formation of, uh, of logos. Uh, and what I mean by that is the capacity to speak, the capacity to think logically. Becoming rhetorical would mean to deploy that, that dynamic, that capacity um, in ways that are maybe not predictable, in ways that are maybe not uh, orderly. Um, so, you know, again, in that sense that rhetoric moves, um, or that rhetoric has the capacity to move us. What, what I think becoming rhetorical means in the context of higher education is to, is to uh, deploy that movement, that riskiness, um, and to imagine, imagine ways of, of deploying uh, intellect, knowledge, uh, deliberation in ways that... Um, the commonplaces of public goods and democracies may be not able to contain uh, as well. And that may mean forging connections, solidarities, um, points of engagement, maybe not with our fellow faculty members alone, but with other members of the university community who are in fact in much more precarious situations than, than we are. People who do not have protections of tenure, people who are not being paid uh, a wage like a faculty wage, people who um, who work day to day, um, and and also forging solidarities with people who may be academics but whose life circumstances may be more precarious than others, um, and to understand those precarities, understand those vulnerabilities, and find ways to 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 activate them uh, in that in that rhetorical sense of potential. Um, to create new networks uh, and new ways of, of uh, forging relationships. Michael Bernard Donalds has been our guest today. He teaches rhetoric and theory in the English department and in the Center for Jewish Studies at UW-Madison. His research areas are contemporary Jewish history and rhetoric, rhetorical history and theory, and 20th and 21st literature and culture. He served as UW-Madison Vice Provost for Faculty and Staff, and he's now the Executive Director of the Center for Teaching and Research on Writing. He has written books on Mikhail Bakhtin, Holocaust Studies, Memory in the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, among many articles and edited collections. The Vulnerability of Public Higher Education is his most recent book, recently published by the Ohio, Ohio State University Press. All right, uh, we have to run. Thank you very much, Michael.
It's been a pleasure, Diego. Thanks for talking with me today. Thank you so much. And also, before we go, I want to thank producer and sound engineer Jade Iseri Ramos. I'm Diego Alegria. Thanks for joining us today at Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Madison.